Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. And we are going to be broadcasting uh, a really wonderful interview with Margot Hall, exec- artistic director <laughs> of the Lorraine Hansberry Theater. And uh, if you were tuned in last Friday, you heard this show. And uh, so we're going to rebroadcast that show. But before we do that, I just wanted to share my April picks, give you a little preview of the preamble. It's not all of my picks, but it's a few. It's, it's quite a bit of it because what what's included here is an interview is a uh, is a review of the play a Hieroglyph, which is uh, currently um, playing on demand at the Lorraine Hansberry Theater as well as San Francisco, sorry, SF Playhouse. Uh, this particular. Um, Production is a co-production, and I just wanted to read you this review kind of preamble that takes into consideration the context that this particular work um, brings up for me. So it starts with wishing everyone a blessed Resurrection Day, which is this Sunday, um, April 4th, and to those participating in uh Ramadan, the Ramadan fast, it begins in April as well, a blessed Ramadan. So it starts. How does one stay connected given the elimination of illusory illusionary landmarks? Were we rehearsing? Minus one, plus one. Empty space where masks that cover everything except the windows to a soul living temporarily in flesh. And this presents a dilemma. I'm struggling with sanity, reality questionable except those things I can still touch like earth and water. What I see is not to be trusted. Images appear manipulated. We doctor our faces so that in Zoom we look our best or choose to show up silence or on mute, camera off. It is easy to lose oneself in such normalized environments. It is easy to lose one's, lose others. We check the participants listed and can't see everyone's name. Who's in the chat? Is the chat enabled? Can I save the chat? Why would I want to chat? Reminds me of undergraduate lecture halls at UC Berkeley when I was a student there. The speaker doesn't know who was in the room or, to my knowledge, care. However, in the more intimate virtual spaces, we do want to know, which is why we enable everything and, if possible, have transcribing services so no one is left out of the conversation, which is as rich as it is to accessibility to all thoughts and feelings. I've been attending a series of our Freedom Sanctuary meetings hosted by the ACORN Center for Restoration and Freedom. Gina Breedlove, medicine woman, sacred sound healer, has been facilitating these free donation-based workshops for uh, black indigenous people of color with no one turned away, with primacy to black women. We are sounding through the chakras the last two weeks, heart and throat. To get to the throat, we breathe through the pelvis. Had to figure out where that was for a moment, and then Gina suggested the kijel, uh or kijel exercise. 
I remembered from womb work after and before childbirth to prepare the uterus and then to tone it afterward. Thereafter, <laughs> birthing a rigorous exercise. And for those who did not have a uterus, they could also participate in visioning that space. I think about Michelle Broder's Mothers of Gynecology project, monument project, honoring the lives of enslaved women, uh, Anarka, Lucy, and Betsy, whose bodies did not belong to herself. So their white owners leased them to J. Marion Sims to experiment on them, supposedly to cure them of fistula. That's a leak between um, uh, the urethra and um, caused by trauma to um, to to the uh, the uterus, and it usually happens when um, girls, young girls. Uh, get pregnant, and then the baby can't come through without really destroying um, the birth canal. Not the birth canal. Well, yeah, the birth canal. And so then they leak um, a urine and other types of uh, fluids there because of, the, because of the tears. Instead, these black women endured horrific torture without anesthesia. The myth, black woman, Black people feel no pain despite the visible and audi- audi- <laughs> the visible and audible evidence to the contrary present with every slice cut intrusive instrument. Think about these women when you see speculum, forceps, black maternal health outcomes, which are really horrible. There still are a lot of black babies dying. Um, because of poor um, uh, maternal health outcomes, as well as women dying. And it doesn't matter economic or class status. Women, Black women are dying unnecessarily because of the connection between race and maternal outcomes and racism and sexism. Sims goes lives on in the high rates of black woman child maternal mortality despite socioeconomic educational level of mother or family. Blackness still trumps race and gender equity. Right now, Broder is working, um, Broder, Michelle Broder, artist, is working with artisan Dana Albany at her box shop in San Francisco to complete these three monumental statues. May 9th, the foundation will be laid in Montgomery, Alabama, where Sims's offices stood or stand. I saw his office building and in another location at City Hall, his statue glorified with that of other criminals. I believe the Confederate flag also flew. My visit for Brian Stevenson's Equal Justice Institute's opening reception for the National Memorial for Peace and Justice Lynching Memorial and the Legacy Museum from Slavery to Mass Incarceration was just after Memorial Day, where the city of Montgomery honored both outcomes of the Civil War. I wondered what the black children visiting the Capitol thought when they realized this alternative celebration was about their freedom. I wonder what the white children thought when imagining what it would feel like to have that kind of power over another human being. 
Broader's Mothers of Gynecology monument centers the focus. The ideology is not lost in abstraction. Black women as breeders kept the slave system supplied with workers. More babies were born in captivity than imported from Africa once this form of capture was outlawed January 1st, 1808. This meant the manufacture of human beings specific to a particular kind of life was particular was a particular kind of demonic enterprise. These three women, emblematic of the worst capitalism imaginable, presented a problem if the least womb did not function. In a Wanda's Ticks broadcast interview, March 10th, with Michelle Broder and J.C. Holman, writer-researcher who is writing a book about Anarcha, the women whose history is more easily traced and documented than other mothers, states that what he learned from the barbaric medical practices on black women emerged a system of care developed in response where these black women, these women took care of one another. This kind of caretaking or caregiving continues today. While the Mothers of Gynecology story is not well known until recently, the story of Henrietta Lacks, whom I call the mother of modern medicine, is her centennial birth, August 1st, 2020. Her immortal HeLa cells are still curing disease. So Womfulness Gatherings and Ma'afa SF Bay Area is curating the libations and prayer ceremony for Mothers of Gynecology Easter Sunday. On Sunday, April 4th, from 10 to 11 a.m., there will be libations and prayers for the Mothers of Gynecology at the Box Shop, 951 Hudson Avenue in San Francisco. 94124. All are welcome, especially black, indigenous people of color. For information, you can visit Facebook at uh, Anaka Lucy Betsy and Arnica, Anarka, sorry, Anarka <laughs> Lucy Betsy.org and Facebook at Maafa SF Bay Area. Oh, no, excuse me. Facebook at <laughs> Maafa Bay Area. Uh, Michelle Broder was one of the Gaia Woman presenters at the first bi-monthly Woundfulness Gathering, gatherings, Gathering for Black Women. The next gathering is May 22nd from 10 to 12 noon. And for more information, for more information, you can visit Woundfulness at uh, gmail dot com, or you can visit Facebook at Woundfulness Nest N E S T. Um, or you can call 510-255-5579. Uh, Honor the wombs that bore you, Allah says in the Quran, a uh, chapter called Anisa. The root of the word for womb, R-H-M, is the same as Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, beneficence, mercy, grace, and compassion. At this point in time, all human life comes through a womb. It does not matter if you like it or not. The point is, if this woman, woman decided not to bear young, there would be no life, yours or mine. My young mother said she had no prenatal care, that after nine months she went into the hospital and they yanked me out with forceps. Mama said, if you complain, the white nurses would slap, you, slap the patients. So she kept her mouth shut. Hers was such a rare case. The attending physician brought in an entire class to watch her give birth. Charity Hospital was a teaching hospital, and in the charity ward, 
I don't think the patients were asked for consent, properly signed away at admission. There was no acknowledgement of the beauty of life and giving birth and the inherently beautiful black mother, she vessel, she chamber, she force of life. There was no conversation, no anesthesia. After they pulled me out her young body and stitched her up, they gave me to her a living baby doll, she said. I was born with a string of flesh in my mouth, and the doctor took a hot iron and seared it off. Again, no no medicine for pain. Babies don't feel pain either. Could these assumptions be based on the fact that we have no voice? Audible, the absence of power, mutes the sound and negates the vibration and affirmation, communication prompts between living beings. The black woman, girl child, does not exist. She inhuman, she not worthy of contemplation. Lorraine Hansberry Theater in collaboration with SF Playhouse, Erica Dickerson's Dispenses Hieroglyph, is a play currently available on demand at both of these theaters' websites. And this particular play, Eric Dispenser's Hieroglyph, asks a similar question. When will black woman, and that's spelled W-O-M, bracketed, or in parentheticals, B, and then E-N, woman, and girls' voices be amplified publicly and behind closed doors? And I include here gender nonconforming black woman, all of us together, because we are all included in the silencing. We practice allyship for protection. Allyship is a form of accompaniment, witnessing from the inside. I see you is a start. Agreement is not a prerequisite for belonging. We will find a place where we agree and build on that premise. We all need... Uh-oh. <laughs> I, I moved that too quickly, sorry. We all need our people. No, we need all our people. <laughs> we see this practice in Dickerson Dispenser's play, Hieroglyph. There are so many relationships explicated here between these pages dance on the stage. Margot Hall, new artistic director, again, of Lorraine Hansberry Theater, is a magician in her elegant navigation of an alternative theater space film. The cast, equally gifted in their ability to capture and translate this wonderful work on the stage via screen, gives the urgency of this story primacy. Black girls, black women are at risk for sexual violence. Black girls and black women are being violated. There is a direct correlation between the people, between a people's violation, especially the women and girls especially of the women and girls, and the earth violation in the great storm where the levees broke, contaminating water and land and killing so many living beings in the golf course, but specifically New Orleans where the levees broke. In the play, young protagonist Davis Dispenser Hayes, she's 13, portrayed brilliantly by actor Jamila Cross, tells her story through her drawings. Her artwork provides a roadmap none but her astute Art teacher Miss T, um, portrayed by actor Sophia Fredericks, can decipher. Davis's loving father, um, Ernest Hayes, portrayed by actor Kare L. Moyer, is trapped in his own demons and worries. 
New Orleans, Louisiana, post-Katrina transplant in Chicago, the father and daughter are still swimming with dead bodies two months later. The mother is not there, which further complicates the story. Miss T establishes a bond with the child right off. There is something about Davis, who joins the class mid-semester, whose craft and skill she admires. There is even what one could call a soul connection evident in a link synergy to a shared if unnamed trauma neither can articulate initially. Davis has nightmares which are staged really well. Sometimes she is up all night and then drags herself to art class where even on a bad day she still answers all the questions posed by Miss T. Correctly. Art is so powerful. One wonders what Davis would have used to articulate so beautifully through those nightmares which woke her from sleep had she not had her drawings, drawing pad and pens. What stories is Davis sharing? Miss T suggests to Ernest, Davis's dad, at a parent-teacher meeting that he look at the drawings and talk to his daughter about them. Davis is failing all her classes except art. Miss T suggests... Uh, her father think about why Davis is doing so well in art. Ernest looks at his daughter's portfolio filled with the face of people met at the Superdome who died. Later on, when the father asks Davis what the color, what the coded language in the pictures means, um, the lines and the numbers, she does not want to share. However, her father sees something is wrong and agrees to find his daughter a therapist. Davis, who is grounded, literally, until she picks up her grades, especially in math, invites a friend to help her. Lee, uh, actor Anne Marie Sharp, Davis's friend from school, who likes her and is also good in math, helps her pass her test. For this Ernest, who is sad, Davis doesn't want to spend time with him on her, her birthday. There's a show at the museum where he works. He wants to take her to. He instead lets Davis spend the night with her friend. He doesn't know the girls have other birthday plans. The playwright paints adults who care about Davis, adults who struggle with themselves yet are not so self-centered that they are unreliable. This is especially true for Miss T, Frederick's character, champions, and pays attention to the details and does not stop at un unraveling the narrative Davis is intentionally drawing. Perhaps this is the beauty of childhood, the kind of childhood Davis had prior to Katrina and Superdome experiences and their indelible impact on her life. Can a man protect and still honor the agency of the girl child he is protecting? Can he keep her life separate from his? Too often men act like they were raped when it is their ego that is raped. How dare he harm my daughter, he thinks. Davis, as possession, blinds the protector to the true victim. The COVID-19 pandemic has increased the danger women and girls are living with. I wonder where they are finding a safe bed. I wonder about homeless children, runaways, sexual exploitation. The playwright is the playwright was influenced to write one of the characters based on the story of a child in Chicago, gang raped, whose body was thrown under a bridge. Trauma is on the table. Yet the father who is trying to keep his job and take care of his daughter while in limbo about his marriage pushes it, trauma, to the side. Parents need to pay attention. The signs are there. It is not often that we see a black father play with his daughter like these two characters do. The characters Dickinson, Dispenser, writes 
are human and have experienced a tragedy most of us cannot conceive, let alone contemplate, when sexual violence is added to the cocktail. Hieroglyph ignites multiple explosions like cluster bombs. Davis's friend Leah, book smart, is also traumatized. What hieroglyph suggests, suggests is we stop judging our children and their friends and pay closer attention. Hieroglyph is part of award-winning 10-play Katrina Cycle of Plays Dickerson Dispenser's writing focused on the effects of Hurricane Katrina in and beyond New Orleans. Hieroglyph is fully produced, as already mentioned, and filmed on stage at SF Playhouse and is presented, as already mentioned, <laughs> as an on-demand video stream through April 3rd, which is Saturday. So you don't want to, like, sleep on this because it's really powerful. Patrons may support the organization of their choice by purchasing tickets $15 to $100 from Lorraine Hansberry Theater at lhtsf.org or from San Francisco Playhouse. I keep on saying that, but it's SF Playhouse at sfplayhouse.org. And to listen or watch this interview, which I'm getting ready um, to um, to play you the audio of, you can... Uh, you can look on Facebook, um, and uh, I recorded this interview about three weeks ago. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, and it's the Facebook. I have a lot of Facebook pages. It's on all of them. But um, the one where I, I taped it was um, Facebook at Wanda Sabir. Uh, <laughs> all righty. So that was a long, long intro. It's like, yeah, we want to hear Margo. Okay. <laughs> Here is Margo um, from that wonderful interview, and we're going to play all of uh, Friday's show. All righty. Thank you so much. Oh, wow. I wanted to tell you something else. There is some really great program that's happening at Barnard College, and I wanted to give you a heads up on that because um, I think it's does it start tomorrow, I think. I'm going to put it in Wanda's Picks, but let me just tell you right now. I have it in my calendar. Uh, let's see, today is the 31st, sorry about that. And there's also um, some stuff on black mental health happening today. It's been happening since last week, but tomorrow, today is the panel. Okay, let's see now, wait a second. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, Reimagining Black Mental Health, um, it, it's through today, and they've been having lots of activities, and today there's a panel um, the panel is, yeah, there's a panel today, and um, I'll have to look for the details on that. And then I think tomorrow, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, it's um, is at Barnard College. It's called June Jordan, and what shall we do? Who we who did not die. A Reckoning with June Jordan, and it is at 3.30, 3.30 to 5 um, Pacific Time, and and it's put on through Barnard Center for Research on Women, and it's it's going to be a really wonderful, um, it's a really wonderful conference, and and you don't want to miss these, these it's free, <laughs> you don't want to miss this programming, um, it's, it's really awesome. So anyway, I just want to give you a heads up on that. So just go to the website for Barnard Center for Research on Women, 
and you will find the whole series there. All righty, so here is Margot Hall in a fabulous interview. It's really, really nice. And, um, yeah, enjoy. Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. This has been a really wonderfully full Women's History Month, and today is our final Friday, and we are going to be bringing you the audio from a virtual interview with the director and artistic uh, director of the play Hieroglyph, as well as Marco Hall is also the artistic director, the new artistic director of the Lorraine Hansberry Theater, the first uh, woman artistic director in the history of this theater. And I want to read you a little bit about Hieroglyph. Uh, This play, Hieroglyph, by Erica Dickerson Despenza, directed by Margot Hall, opened for on-demand video March 13th, and it continues through next weekend, April 3rd. And it is a collaboration between Lorraine Hasbury Theater and the San Francisco Playhouse. And this uh, this work, which is magnificent, um, it is uh, wow! It's like I said, it's it's, it's really really awesome. Um, San Francisco Playhouse artistic director Bill English, producing director uh, Susie. Uh, Damilano and Lorraine Hansberry Theater Artistic Director Marco Hall Executive Director Stephanie uh, Schaffner uh, again present this co-production of the new play Hieroglyph by Erica Dickerson Dispenza the cast features Jamila Cross, Safia Fredericks uh, Carrie L. Moyer and Anna Marie Sharp um, and uh this uh, work, directed by Margot Hall, marks the Lorraine Hansberry Theater's first stage production since COVID-19 pandemic began a year ago. And it's the first production that Margot, again, has directed for the company since taking the helm in September 2020. And Hieroglyph, fully produced and filmed on stage at San Francisco Playhouse, is presented as an on-demand video stream. Uh, through April 3rd, and uh, and the way that patrons support the organization of their choice is by purchasing tickets, which are a modest $15 through $100, <laughs> from Lorraine Hansberry Theater at lhtsf.org or from San Francisco Playhouse at sfplayhouse.org. The compelling drama Hieroglyph follows 13-year-old Davis involuntarily displaced in Chicago two months post-Katrina, where she wrestles with the cultural landscape of a new city and school community while secretly coping with the PTSD of an assault at the Superdome. With her mother still in New Orleans committed to the fight for black land ownership and her father committed to starting a new life in the Midwest, 
the voice threatens to further separate the family already torn apart. Will Davis be left hanging in the balance? Hieroglyph traverses the intersection of environmental racism, sexual violence, and displacement, examining the psychological effects of a state-sanctioned man-made disaster on the most vulnerable members of Katrina or of the Katrina diaspora. This work is a part of award-winning playwright Dickerson Dispenza's planned 10-play Katrina cycle of plays focused on the effects of Hurricane Katrina in and beyond New Orleans. Now, you know that this this person, uh, Wanda Sabir, is from New Orleans and interested in all things New Orleans and specifically in this disaster, um, I think, 16 years ago this August 29th. Um, the playwright Erica Dickerson Dispenza is a black feminist poet playwright, cultural worker, educator, and grassroots organizer from Chicago, Illinois. And she is one of America's most in-demand rising playwrights. Her recognition includes um, quite a bit, and you can read it in the program because <laughs> I want to get you right to this um, interview with, with Margot Hall. She she is just a phenomenal director, and the play is riveting. You probably want to see it a couple of times, so don't wait till the last moment to see it because you can you know, definitely go back and, and see the work. Going to, without further ado... Uh, play this interview, and I hope you enjoy it. And yeah, check out wandaspicks.com for other activities and things you can do this this for the rest of the month. And and then when April rolls around, um, there will be a lot of lot of activities because April is, I think it's Jazz Heritage Month as well as National Poetry Month. There was a week, and I think now it's a month. <laughs> and um, the Museum of the African Diaspora always has really, really great programming. Um, Nia McAllister has a wonderful series on Thursdays at 6, poetry every Thursday. And we're going to try to get some poetry happening um, uh, like we did last year. We had poetry every month because um, we felt that in a, in a pandemic Poetry is something that everybody needs, and without a pandemic, we're still in the pandemic. Poetry is still something everyone needs, and the poets are writing. Everyone's writing and doing lots of art. So without further ado, here is Margot Hall talking about being artistic director of Lorraine Hansberry Theater, what her plans are, as well as this marvelous production, Hieroglyph, that's up presently through April 3rd.
we are here. <laughs> hey. Okay. Hi, Marco. So I'm so happy you were able to fit us into your busy schedule. You know, you got a got a production opening, uh, Lorraine Hansberry Theater in collaboration with longtime friends, San Francisco Playhouse. And yeah. you are artistic director at Stand with the community teaching classes at UC Berkeley, you said? Yeah. Uh, You're my teacher. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So um, I'm going to read your bio from the website, uh, the Lorraine Hansberry Theater website, and uh, and just just tell you how how honored I am to have known you and, and been able to experience your wonderful artistic trajectory over the past. 30 years, I think I was there. Yeah, we go way back. We go way back, Wanda. Yes, we do. And thank you for always being there and supporting everything. Yeah. So you are an award-winning actor, director, playwright, and educator. You have been leading a leading presence in national and local theater communities for more than 30 years, as we already mentioned. You are the first female artistic director of the Lorraine Hansberry Theater, named for the trailblazing black female playwright of Raisin in the Sun. You take the helm at a moment when, where artists of color demand representation and change in the American theater. With a career dedicated to bringing the stories of people of color to life, you are committed to creating a safe space for fostering black artists, particularly black female and non-binary people of color. You were also committed to, um, you also committed to to creating a theater space for artists that are uh, underrepresented as well as increasing society's exposure to diverse perspectives. And, And you have, gosh, I remember, you know, watching um, Blind Spotting, and, and there you were, <laughs> you know. And, and then I was just thinking of back to, you know, sort of seeing you in the various roles of office books and plays, and, mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, when you were um, in Marcus Gardley's wonderful sort of Pan-African tale. I mean, we even, we rolled through, you know, Hurricane Katrina in that particular story, mm-hmm. and you're mm-hmm. a goddess. You know, and, and you stick with the family. Like, you become a human being because you're so committed to seeing this family, you know, come to safety. Like, you mm-hmm. like you would give up. And, and you didn't like being a human being at all because it was so different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had you to know, get God, You had to get old. <laughs> right, exactly. And you were like, you know, you were the goddess of beauty. And it's like, yeah, That's yeah. Right. You know. It's like, I can't, I can't age. <laughs> What are you talking about? <laughs> right, right, yeah. And then that wonderful play that you did um, where you you wrote it for your family and you sort of told mm-hmm. your story and Marcus uh, mm-hmm. Shelby did the music. It was so yeah. wonderful. And, yeah. you know, going yeah. with you to your father, your mother's house, where in the basement you met everybody. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mhm. And And then now, you know, wow. You know, really, people really need to pay attention because 30 years can go like, and you you don't even realize that it's past. I mean, you're like one of the founding member, you know, directors uh, of the theater, um, Campo Santo. Campo Santo. Like, oh, my goodness. 
Mm-hmm. Ooh, I see. From Alma, I'm you that you um, found this up. So anyway, are you sitting here with me? Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, you're not teaching at the moment, and that's a debut coming up on Saturday. So, so tell me about, you know, maybe we could talk a little bit about your position, you know, as I yeah. get director and Lorraine is getting ready to have a birthday in you know, May 19th. And That's right, 40 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, 40 years. I mean, you know, I've always had a relationship with Lorraine Hansberry Theater as an actor or a director over the many years. And, um, and then I've been approached before about becoming the artistic director because for the last maybe six years they've had interim directors uh, after Stephen Anthony Jones, you know, stepped away. And, uh, but I didn't think I was ready. You know, at that time, I, I was, have a great freelance career and I was teaching and I just wasn't sure that I would be able to, you know, do the, dedicate myself to that position at that time. And I was enjoying myself, just kind of doing whatever I wanted to do. So, uh, when everything happened with the pandemic and then the death of George Floyd and a lot of artists started coming forward about their issues around um, anti-blackness in these predominantly white institutions, um, and then we had the We See You movement happening in uh, New York and other various movements throughout the country around, you know, these issues of anti-blackness and systemic racism within our artistic community. And and I thought about what theaters are going to suffer the most because of this pandemic. And it would be culturally specific institutions because they don't necessarily get the funding that a lot of the predominantly white institutions get. And I was really concerned about mm-hmm. Lorraine Hansberry Theater, and I kind of just offered my service as a volunteer to say, how can I help? What can I do? Um, And I also started a fund um, to fund black theaters across the United States, and I started a GoFundMe uh, with Aldo Billingsley and a few other folks, and we actually raised $143,000 that we were able to give to about 10 black institute, you know, black theater companies um, to help them get through this uh, pandemic. And then I had a meeting with Stephanie and a group of us, me, Cleavon, and Aldo, uh, not Aldo, um, Daryl V. Jones, who was the artistic director at the time. And we kind of came together and said, what can we do to help Lorraine Hansberry Theater mm-hmm. and uh, as a volunteer? And then, you know, we just started talking, and and Stephanie said, you know, would you like to take a walk (laughs) and talk to me about your thoughts on Lorraine Hansberry Theater? And at the time, Daryl V. Jones was uh, completing his time because he was going to be there for uh, like three more months at that time. So they were actively searching for an artistic director. So I went for a walk with Stephanie, and next thing you know, we were talking about what we were going to do for the theater, and she kind of said, you think you want to come on board? And I said, yeah, I think it's about that time. So um, after our hike, uh, we came together, and I 
decided that it was time because I felt like I had a a moment of clarity during all this confusion as to where my alliance needed to be. And I knew that I needed to be with a black institution and to spend less of my energy trying to work with predominantly white institutions and their issues around race and uh, them trying to get themselves together. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to go over here and make a safe space for the artists so that they don't have to deal with these issues that are coming up with these other theaters. Um, and so that has basically been my dedication to this position is creating that safe space, trying really hard to create a nurturing ground for new artists to um, make a space where our black and brown folks feel welcome and uh, feel like their work can blossom without censorship or trying to please a white audience. That's really, really wonderful. Um, yeah, I remember um, the uh, the Juneteenth initiative last year. Um, mm -hmm. That um, you know that play and in that yeah. initiative. That's really wonderful. One hundred and forty-three thousand dollars. Wow, yeah. that's great. Yeah. Uh, can do you remember? Can you share those theaters that you were able to um, assist with those funds so that they could continue? Because um, I know um, the black theaters, a lot of them you know, that existed in the past, um, we don't have as many anymore. Yeah, and this was, um, you know, had nationwide. So um, I don't know if I can remember all of them. Uh, but, you know, we yeah. we were able to fund, like, African American Shakes, um, Lorraine Hansberry Theater, even okay. though because I started that fund before I became artistic director. But we recused ourselves so that we had no uh, say in if Lorraine Hansberry Theater would get the money or not. Um, also, um, certain, uh, uh, wow, I would have to give you the list. I need to post that on okay. Facebook. Uh, yeah, but it yeah, was, you know, yeah, theaters uh, in New York, theaters in Minnesota. Um, it wasn't just local. It was whoever applied. I mean, we, we it was interesting because we thought we would get a lot of people to apply, but we only had maybe, what, 20 applications? And we made the applications really simple. Like, you just had to say you're a theater company, you're culturally specific to black theater, and you have done a production in the last three years. I mean, it was a very simple application. And I think out of the the eight, 19 applications we had, we funded like 15 people. So almost everyone who applied got, got money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I remember, you know, when August Wilson um, sort of did that call you know, to black theater and, and you know, sort of definitively around, around who black theater is and, um, and, and what that means and, and how, uh, you know, as, as a collective, <clears throat> you know, there were certain responsibilities connected to that. And, uh, and then I remember um, Idris Akamore and Rodessa Jones sort of mm -hmm. taking that and kind of like um, making it, uh, in institutionalizing it um, in, mm -hmm. in their work at Cultural Odyssey, 
and um, and of course you know about all that because you were here. Um, but I just yeah, wanted to just I talk mean, those a little are the bit about years who laid the laid the groundwork, you know, for the work I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yes, yeah, so I want you to talk a little bit about about theater, you know, the form, and and, and black storytelling, and 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 your entree into into this particular. Um, uh, medium, genre, field, uh, because I think you've been performing all your life. I know yeah. art has been a part of your life since you grew up in it. Like it's a part of the the air that you you know were breathing <laughs> when you first you know came home from the hospital. Unless you were born yeah. at home, and then you know like you didn't have to go to <laughs> like right there in the crib. So yeah, you come by it you know like really organically, mm-hmm. and one can see that in the various ways that you show up. You know, as director, as actress, you know, um, as as producer, as writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I've always been a performer. Uh, I was in uh, dance school at the age of five, and I grew up in a, the fabulous place of Detroit, Michigan, um, in this little town called Highland Park, which is right inside Detroit, and. Um, my mom was really, really keen on having her daughters, I have two sisters, involved in the arts from a very young age. So, like, we went to Tony School of Dance, which was a black dance uh, school in Detroit when I was five. So it was like my sister, I was five, my other sister was nine, and my other sister was 12, and we were all in this dance school. And um, and I was performing plays at a very young age, and I was my very first theater I performed in was the Langston Hughes Theater. So I've known, you know, Lorraine Hansberry, Alice Childers, Langston Hughes, uh, all of these people were a part of my life growing up. Um, and I was fortunate enough that um, my upbringing was very was based in a lot of black cultural studies and uh, Bessie Smith. I remember my first report I did in middle school was on Bessie Smith. <laughs> so I, I was always intrigued by black artists and um, in all realms of art from uh, painters to dancers uh, to singers. Um, and then my mom remarried my stepfather when I was an adolescent around nine or 10 who worked with Motown. And so then I got a whole nother taste of these artists who uh, became part of my uh, extended family. Uh, People like Aretha Franklin, he wrote and arranged some of her stuff and uh, the Supremes. He was the artist. um, He was the, um, um, I think Margo. <laughs> uh, he was the arranger and conductor for the Supremes when I was growing up. So I had a chance to actually perform with them when I was a little girl. And But all of these people were like family. They were just really hardworking artists, you know, who were very talented but worked really hard um, to create this Motown sound. Uh, so I was always surrounded by art and um and not just singers and dancers, but actors and painters. Um, and we had a, in our basement, that's where everyone would gather. And my dad had a 15-piece orchestra called the New Breed Bebop Society. 
And a lot of artists came out of Detroit from that training ground and have gone on to do amazing things. So, uh, so it was a wonderful time, you know, but I also grew up in Detroit and it was, it was a tough time, you know, there was crime and there were all these other things that were going on, but at the same time, we were persevering uh, as black folks in my neighborhood and other neighborhoods and using art and culture to keep us grounded and to keep us focused. So I really applaud my, my family for that and for their support. I mean, I actually went to school for two years to be a dentist because my mom wanted me to be a doctor. <laughs> and, I, and I did it for two years, and then I said, no, I want to be an artist. So I, I left University of Michigan, and I went to school in New York, and, and that was that. And then I just continued my career from there and ended up in the Bay in the 90s um, and then got hooked up with Campo Santo, and that's where most of my training ground came from here in the Bay um, and was able to create some really good work with some amazing people who I love and who I'm still connected to today um, and got some new stuff coming out with Campo Santo soon that I'm super excited about. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's a little bit about my background. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to share the names of, of your uh, co-collaborators, founders at Campo Santo? Yes, John San Jose, Michael Torres, and may he rest in peace, the amazing Luis Sagua. Um, and uh, we got this little gritty city company up on its feet in the 90s and just worked with amazing writers like Octavio Solis and Naomi Izuka and Jessica Hagador doing plays that a lot of theaters were afraid to produce. But we were brave. We, took, we were risk takers. And um, we had this little 70-seat theater at Intersection for the Arts. Um, and we worked with these young folks like Shanaka Hodge and David Diggs and all of these superstars that are um, tearing up the world right now. Um, and that's how I met David was through Campo Santo. Um, so when he was able to move on and do his thing, he reached back and pulled me along. So I, I appreciate that. And I don't know if you know this, Wanda, but the blind spotting is going to be a TV show now um, on stars. And so we've been filming for the last four months for the TV show. So I will be playing Nancy, his mom, again uh, in the TV show. Hopefully it will come out, I think, this summer. I'm not sure. We just finished the last episode in Oakland uh, last week or a week and a half ago. Yeah. Okay. Oh, how exciting. Yeah, really nice. That's what, and Shanaka Hodge um, wrote the play <laughs> that that yes. was in. At, That's right. At a uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I really like Intersection for the Arts. So intimate, you know. Yeah, it was a great space, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, we, had, yeah. we had some good, good times. Oh, man, some really good theater. And it's so funny. I think you all would lock the door once it started. So yeah. you had to be on time, otherwise you'd have to go to the next the next production if there was another one. 
<laughs> I know, right? People have yeah. been knocking on the door. I, and yeah, I learned like, that the hard way. So smart. Nobody yeah. answers. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah, so why don't we talk a little bit about hieroglyphs and, and the uh, – the uh, playwright uh, Erica Dickerson Dispenza. We were speaking a little before we went live that about the story, and, and I was just saying how all stories about New Orleans and the Gulf and Hurricane Katrina like really hit me because because that's that's my home. Yeah. I'm, I'm from New Orleans, mm. and so these are my people. Wow. And and even yeah. today, you know, um, 15 years later, um, you know the what happened is still is still there. We have a lot of Katrina survivors still here in the Bay Area in California, elsewhere mm-hmm. in yes. the uh, yes. United States can't go home because they rent it, and now it's too expensive. So New Orleans, those places look really different. But the echoes yes. of the trauma and the pain, you know, people are still carrying that. Particularly, you know, you think about children that sort of like maybe didn't have words then, uh, but but now mm-hmm. they're, they're big, but they had they experienced trauma, but they had yes. Something out you know, in their behavior, in their body, and we've got yep. this beautiful little protagonist that she can't speak. She has no words, right? So, why don't you tell us about the story and how you all came to, you know, be mounting it and and the director? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Bill uh, Hieroglyphs. First of all, I wanted to say that the playwright Erica Dickerson Dispenza is an incredible young person um and it's been a pleasure she's been here working on she's been with us the whole process in our zoom rehearsals as well as when we went into the theater but i can talk more about that um but uh the play itself a lot of the things that you were saying uh deals with the displacement of families after hurricane katrina and the young girl davis 14 year old um, black girl whose family was displaced and placed in Chicago, uh, they spent four days in the Superdome after the hurricane. And unfortunately, during that time in the Superdome, Davis experienced some trauma. Uh, there was a lot going on in that space. And when you look back and you read the articles and you see the documentaries, um, it still does not tell all of the tales went down. And I think a lot of the stories of abuse and things like that were never spoken of. And so Erica is bringing that to light and talking specifically about the abuse of young black women um, and, and just the abuse on black bodies and how it gets swept under the rug because people don't think it's important. Um, and so she is talking about that in this play through the character of Davis and allowing Davis to express her trauma in her artwork. And so her teacher notices how she is kind of doing this peculiar type of art where she is um, showing bits and pieces of something. Uh, And the audience is aware from very early on that Davis was uh, abused in the Superdome. So it's more about us watching navigate through that and try to help Davis through this journey. Um, Erica talks a lot about how she was influenced by Toni Morrison, and Toni Morrison is not always interested in plot and all of that. Toni Morrison will tell you right off the top 
who's dead, who's not, who killed them, right? And then she goes into the journey of the story. Just like in jazz, at the top of the, this, well, the play we did, but at the top of the story, you see the wife stabbing the girl who's in the casket who was the woman who was having an affair with her husband. You know right away the story, right? So it's not about the audience trying to see the reveal, um, which is uh, I really appreciate that about her work. And, again, influenced by Toni Morrison. So uh, eventually it all comes out, and Davis is supported by her family, uh, and the village kind of comes together to save Davis. And I think that's important for the play because it offers hope because it is a very intense play, you know, and I say trigger warning. Um, it does deal with um, some really strong issues around uh, rape and abuse. So, uh, but we have to tell those stories, right? Because we have to highlight what is happening to our young black girls um, from sex trafficking to murder, as in Breonna Taylor, right? And so if nobody else is going to talk about it, we have to talk about it. And it is uncomfortable, but it's bringing these stories to life. And the um, Erica was influenced by a story of a young girl named Shatoya Curry. Uh, Erica, when she left New Orleans, she was also place in Chicago. So she grew up most of her life in Chicago. And when she was a young girl, she heard a story about uh, Shatoya Curry, who was a girl who was uh, raped and murdered in the project. And it was a really horrible story. And they found her body in the project stairwell. And that stuck with Erica. Um, and uh, you'll see in the play, one of the characters mentions Shatoya Curry and that story and that um, was also part of the influence of why Erica is writing this play about young David. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. Um, I want you to talk a little bit, um, I don't think it'll give away anything, about the relationship that um, Davis has with her father. I read a little bit of, of the play and it's uh, yeah, I think it's, it's it's a beautiful relationship, you know. Like you don't you don't get a chance to witness girls, children, and their father relationship mm -hmm. um, enough. You know, yeah, black girls and black fathers, you know, that are loving mm -hmm. and nurturing, and and you can talk to the dad, and you know, like like it should be like normal, you know, kind of like normal. Yeah, it that. is normal. And they just don't show you that. Know, they <laughs> you know. Through, yeah, it's like, you know, you have that kind of relationship with your stepdad, right? So, yeah, I, yeah. yeah. So um, it's, but, you know, in the play, what's interesting about Davis's relationship with her father, whose name is Ernest, uh, there is, it's tough for them because Davis's mother is not there. So another part of the play is that Davis's mom, she stays in New Orleans to kind of fight for their property um, when they're displaced and put into Chicago, and put in Chicago. So Davis and her father are trying to navigate kind of a new relationship where he is struggling to raise a 14-year-old girl that um, was mostly just had a deeper relationship with her mother, right? 
So, uh, and then the idea that she would have to go to him and talk about this abuse um, is really difficult for David. And she doesn't have her mother there to talk to. Um, and you get a little sense of that in the conversations where the phone calls that the father has with the mother, that the mother has chosen not to be with them right now. So they're kind of separated. Um, so you do see the blossoming of this relationship with the young girl and her father um, and a very tender moment by the end of the play um, of them really coming together. Uh, so, so yeah, it does show that a caring father who's trying to figure out how to be a dad under these circumstances in this whole new place with a 14-year-old uh, and how he's navigating that. And I just wanted to give a shout-out to the cast because it's amazing cast. Kyrie Moore is playing the father, Sophia Fredericks is playing the teacher, the lovely Jamela Cross is playing Davis, and then a newcomer, Anna Marie Sharp, who is actually one of my students at UC Berkeley, is playing Leah. So it's very exciting that I get to bring one of my students into the professional workplace, right, um, which is also a big part of my life is mentorship, mentorship working with these young folks, giving them hope, giving them focus, and allowing any opportunity I have to reach back and bring someone forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the play is um, going to be an on-demand video streaming March 13th through April 3rd of uh, this year, and, um, and people can get tickets, um, uh, $15 to $100, from the Lane Hansberry Theater, from the website um, lhtsf.org, or mm -hmm. San Francisco Playhouse, sfplayhouse.org. So how was the whole um, process of performance to, uh, <laughs> to virtual platform? Like, how, how, do you, how did that work out? Yeah, it's a crazy process. Um, so we rehearsed over Zoom for three weeks just digging into the play, um, and then we went into the theater to film the play. So very rigorous process for the actors because we basically had to, what we call, block the play, stage it on Zoom uh, right before we went to the theater. So we set up um, a video of the theater so they could see the space that they were going into, see all the furniture, see all the places that they would be able to move through and navigate to tell the story. So we blocked it over Zoom, went through the script, said, you cross here, you go to the table here, so that when we got into the theater itself, we only had two days of rehearsal in the space where they could move around and block everything. And then we filmed it for three days, um, and we were able to film uh, four runs of the show. Now, we had to follow COVID protocols. We all had to get tested, I think, up to four times, uh, two times before we even came to the space, no, three times before we came to the space, and then the day we got there, we had to do a test that we mailed off to get results the next day. Uh, so it was a lot of intense protocols, 
Um, only the actors could be on the stage with the crew. And that was hard for me because I like being on the stage and moving stuff around. Uh, but because uh, just once I went off the stage, I couldn't get back on because then I was interacting with crew. I mean, I was interacting with production, you know, sound, lights, everything like that. And so um, it was, I had to be like in the audience, which was good. It was fine. It all worked out. Uh, but those actors had to just come into that space, learn everything really quick, and then the pressure of, okay, and action. Because it's a film, right? So, uh, and we ran the play. It's not like we stop and go and take this shot and film that again. So they had to kind of go through the play. Um, and now we're in post and putting all the pieces together, making sure, oh, that shot, and how do we fix this? We have in the play intimacy, right? There are two actors in the play that um, have to physically touch each other. And that was a big deal with the union because they said, well, we don't know about that. I mean, how do you do that during COVID? So we had to put the actors up in a hotel uh, for the whole time so that they were quarantined outside of the other actors because those two actors had to be intimate with each other. So they were actually quarantined in a hotel, which was across the street from the theater. And the only thing they could do was stay in their hotel, go to the theater, go back to their hotel. Food had to be delivered, everything. Um, and so that happened. And, and luckily, everything worked out. And again, we were constantly getting uh, the COVID test and all of that protocol because we really wanted, I know, I know for me personally, I really wanted to try to recreate a theatrical experience as much as I could um, and not do this play over Zoom. Um, I feel like it was kind of the best way to do the play. And I think there's still kind of quirky things that happen. Sometimes the filming is not exactly right. Uh, but I do think that it gives the audience a real experience of witnessing something that is a play. And it still has cinematic value as well because there were certain things we could do and make them more cinematic because we were using three cameras to film this whole play. So I think it, um, it should be a wonderful experience to watch, not only to see this phenomenal play, but to see these actors and to see how you can start to combine the elements of film and, and a play together to create um, a theatrical experience. So I'm looking forward to seeing what people think. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. So um, with regards to your relationship, Lorraine Hansberry Theater's relationship with San Francisco Playhouse, um, it, it, it's gone. It, it's, it's a relationship that um, has been uh, in existence for a minute. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. And then between the two theaters, you know, producing this play, Hieroglyph, um, to get, you know, together, um, did Lorraine Hansberry Theater already have the filming uh, uh, expertise um, as well, uh, or the San Francisco Playhouse, or did you mm -hmm. both bring um, that particular experience to the table and then collaborated around the production? 
how, how did that work out? Yeah, so so talking about the history with SF Playhouse and Lorraine Hansberry Theater, the first play I ever directed for SF Playhouse, which was called The Story, uh, was a co-production with Lorraine Hansberry Theater. And, um, and then there were a couple other co-productions with LHT. It may have been four or five altogether. So, uh, so that relationship has been going on. And when Bill came to me with the play Hieroglyph, he was really excited about this play. And he was like, you're the one who has to direct it. And I said, well, this is my new thing. This is my thing. If anyone wants to co wants me to direct, it is a co-production with Lorraine Hansberry Theater. Um, and so whatever resources you have, we will come together with whatever resources we have. Uh, as a company, you have the space and you have been filming before. So SF Playhouse did a filmed version of the play Art. And then they also recently did Songs for a New World, which was kind of a musical um, where they use local artists, and that was also filmed on stage. So it was a, a great opportunity to film Hieroglyph. But uh, one of the things that I'm pretty clear on is if I'm going to give my time to another theater, it has to be in conjunction with Lorraine Hansberry Theater and co-produced because we need to get um, as much of the press as anyone else because I am the artistic director of the Ring Hansberry Theater. So, uh, and Bill and I have worked together on so many projects. I mean, I directed for SS Playhouse outside of Lorraine Hansberry Theater. Um, I've acted in plays there. And so we have a longstanding relationship since the story. Um, and at one point, mm -hmm. Lorraine Hansberry Theater was in that same space where SF Playhouse is today. I know. So, uh, so to be in that space is it's important to me. <laughs> and uh, so to do this play in that space with this co-production, I think, is just continuing that relationship. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I feel the same way when I'm in that space. I, I see Clinton and I see Stanley mm -hmm. at the reception when Lorraine Hansberry there is like, we finally have a new home, right? I know. And, I know. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and then Stephen was there, and, I, and we did, I directed this play, Rejoice, and we had a season there, you know. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, we couldn't hold on to it, but we'll be back. Don't worry, right. we're going to get our own space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was reading that that's one of, um, one of you know, you have that you have a list, and that's on your list. Um, yeah. With, you know, Lorraine Hansberry having its own space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what else is on your list? What else is on my list? Okay, so um, I have a lot, uh, an initiative that I'm working on, which is a mentorship initiative. One of the first few things I want to do is to have a three-year, uh, maybe one to three years, we're still working out timing of that, of mentorship between an emerging playwright and an established playwright, black uh, playwright, and um, have them on a project over a three-year period. And basically, I, I'm really interested in the opportunity of having the black female established playwrights talk about 
what it has been for them. You know, people like Dominique Marceau, Katori Hall, these people, Lynn Nottage, that have had to navigate this world and get their work out there and work with emerging playwrights. Some of the, and they don't necessarily have to be young emerging playwrights, but three emerging playwrights who um, are in need of this mentorship. And hopefully it will be more than just an exchange of how to write a play. It'll be more about how to survive as a black female playwright in this industry. And I'm hoping that uh, we would be able to meet once a year for an annual um, coming together at a black owned space um, and just spend some retreat time together um, and really uh, learn from each other on many different levels. And also some, if you got some young folks with some older folks, there's some intergenerational learning, right? What can they teach us? Uh, and just trying to create this uh, initiative so that it continues over the years. So then you have those mentees, they become the mentors. And in the meantime, you're creating work, right? And we are committed to producing these plays that come out of this um, mentorship on our stage at Lorraine Hansberry Theater. But that, you know, we got to raise a lot of money for that. <laughs> but that's that's one of my initiatives. Yeah, because I, you know, I talk a lot about. Uh, I I really want T to be um, more than just a, a, an institution that produces plays. Um, I really want a the training ground uh, uh, opportunity to serve a broader community of black artists, uh, possibly have a gallery, um, and just expand our notion of what a cultural institution can be um, and, um, and create that space and also produce great shows. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think Lorraine Hansberry Theater has commissioned work in the past, and I remember when um, August Wilson was working on on the uh, the centennial, um, you know, ten play cycle. Sometimes um, they would be workshops at Lorraine Hansberry Theater. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about um, seven guitars and um, uh, oh, and seven guitars and and the one about the taxi. Um, Jitney. Jitney, yes, mm -hmm. and August Wilson actually came through, wow, <laughs> and in the play, and, yeah, yeah, because I went to see Seven Guitars twice, and, mm -hmm. and 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 one time, the actor was on 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 script because August Wilson had just changed something, yeah, like, and he, you know, like right at that moment, I'm like, whoa, this is so exciting, yeah, that's and fantastic. and you know. Yeah. And then it was like it was free. It was open to the community. Like, mm -hmm. and all the Wilson was on the stage and just going mm -hmm. back and forth. I mean, it was just it's similar to like Ashley Davis and Ruby D. You mm -hmm. know, if they were in the area and, and you had just heard them talk, you know, they'd be out in the in the, in the lobby, and you was like, mm -hmm. "Wow, that's Ashley Davis! Oh my goodness!" Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I was just wondering. I know Lorraine Hansberry, and I'm going to let you go in, in, a, in a few minutes. Um, would have wonderful, wonderful. Um, program there will be new work and people would submit their scripts and then you all would select you know who was going to be in this particular showcase and we see all these wonderful plays that for the first time you know and I was mm -hmm. wondering um, if you could talk a little bit about, about your season 
um, and women's deciding and and some of the things are you going to be continuing that particular um, aspect of of the uh, of the theater where you would have this new work kind of showcase which which is you know, yeah kind of you know and different um, yeah it, it's it's an interesting time Wanda I mean we right now we're going to do hieroglyph and then we're going to do a radio production of Intimate Apparel because Intimate Men Nottages oh, Intimate okay. Apparel was supposed to go up yeah. right when COVID hit, right? So we never got to do that. Mm-hmm. So what we're thinking of doing now is reprising it in a radio play. So that will be like mm-hmm. the next thing that's up after Hieroglyph. And then after that, okay. you know, we're going to start to get the initiative going, hopefully. Um, And then we have to figure out, uh, because we're not sure what's going on at Burial Clay. Um, And people don't know when they're going to open up their theaters. So it's kind of a tricky time. So I wouldn't say, like, we have a season planned, because we got to really think deep about where we're going to show our plays, what these plays are going to mean for our communities, so we're in the process of trying to figure out just where we're going to be. Um, and if we are going to be in a space, we probably are really interested in finding um, our our holiday show. Uh, so trying to figure out what the, that's probably when we feel like we might be back in a space, whatever space that's going to be. Uh, and so we're focusing on what, what, what do we need for our community um, during this time and, I, you know, I, I maybe I'm a different type of artistic director, but I really need to see what we need before I say, oh, I'm going to plan four plays for the next year. I don't know what this community needs yet. I want to see what's out there. I want to see what all of this new work that's coming out of this crazy COVID period, what does that mean? Well, how is that work going to impact the community? So I'm, I'm doing some deep thinking about what it means to have a season. Um, and, 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 and is that, uh, is that a series of poetry, um, over Zoom, mm-hmm. which is the poetry of Audre Lorde and Lorraine Hansberry Theater? Um, is it bringing young poets together with the older poets? Um, you know, I'm always interested in this mentorship and intergenerational learning. So it may not be a play that you see on Zoom. But, um, again, thinking about what we need, that's what I'm exploring right now. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, that, which sort of really kind of um, takes us back to how, you know, this child, Davis, um, she has her art. Like she can mm-hmm. put what she's feeling on the paper, on the canvas. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, art is so important. You know, theater, we see these characters, and they speak what we're feeling you know, in the mm-hmm. audience. Well, maybe we didn't have words, but we see ourselves in that character mm-hmm. or in right. that story. And you mm-hmm. spoke about safety, you know, um, when you were talking about you know, education. safety where you don't have to explain because the people mm-hmm. around you know the, they're, they're, they're your people. So you don't have yeah. to, like, start with the introductory remarks because we, we're in the same space. We know each other. We know the history because <laughs> we're yeah. black people. So you can think about right. that stuff and just get to it. Get to yeah, the work. So thinking about art as a 
Get to the work, right, right. So, <laughs> you know, sort of like right now just listening and watching and, mm-hmm. and you know, being open to, you know, approach. Like what, you know, like you say, you know, we just came through a whole year of, mm-hmm. of being distanced and, and being distanced sometimes in spaces where we were not, we had to be careful because we weren't safe. Mm-hmm. Or distance yeah. and, you know, and having your, your basic needs in peril, like housing. Mm-hmm. Like how many people lost their housing? How many people I know. You know. Um, are, you know, are, yeah, yeah, like housing instability, food, having to yeah. work jobs that put you in danger every single day you go to That's work. That's right. That's right. How many people lost yeah. their family members, lost lives? I mean, I think we want to really think about community when mm-hmm. we come back whatever that means, but it, 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 it's going to be some coming together on a, on a whole different level, I feel, um, where we can support each other with art and, like, he's trying to figure out what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to, you know, your plan as it unfolds and, yeah. you know, the broader community to, to maybe um, – you know, be like a fishbowl. We could be outside holding you all as you all talk. You know, and yes, these please. sessions. So we could like, the <laughs> too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for those, um, you know, don't want to miss Hieroglyph, um, Erica Dickerson, uh, the census play directed by Margot Hall, uh, collaboration between Lorraine Hansberry Theater and San Francisco Playhouse. Um, it's going to be a movie uh, streaming from March 13th, which is Saturday. April 3rd, and you can um, uh, purchase tickets through Lorraine Hansberry Theater at their website, lhtsf.org, or San Francisco Playhouse's uh, website, sfplayhouse.org, and tickets are 15 to $100. And in your um, your various initiatives, if people want to um, contribute and things like that, um, can they reach you through Lorraine Hansberry Theater? Yes. If you go to lhtsf.org, there's a big donate button <laughs> right there on the website. Um, and we appreciate whatever <laughs> you can give. Uh, yeah, it, it, it is definitely um, important to fund uh, the black institutions and any theaters that are culturally specific because normally they don't necessarily have all the legacy funds that a lot of the predominantly white institutions have. And one of the things about creating a safe space for our artists to come home to, we still have to compete financially with these larger spaces or just with spaces um, that are have the same capacity as we do, but they just have more funding. So I don't want to be a theater that says, oh, bring your work here, but we can't pay you as much, but you come to the black theater. No, I want to be able to pay, if not the same, more. Um, and that's why the funding is important so that we can compete and we can create not only a safe environment, but, um, you know, a vi- uh, an environment where a person has paid their work. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Well, thank you again for joining us, Margot, and um, looking Welcome, forward to Margie. seeing you in blind spotting on stars. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be fun. That's going to be yeah. fun. And, um, yeah. Definitely um, love to have you again um, to come and stay with us and let us know how things are going and other ways that community can be supportive of Lorraine Hansberry, you know, our premier African-American theater 
um, yeah. here in the Bay Area. Thanks, Wanda. Thank you for always supporting me and the whole community, always being our advocate. Um, we can't do this without you, so thank you. Thank you. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. You take good care. Okay. Bye now. Peace and blessings. Thank you. Bye. So that was that was Margot Hall, and uh, I'm gonna play a musical selection, and uh, and we might we might end a little bit early, but I'm gonna play um, Amakela Gaston, and <laughs> one one of my favorites, uh, Hambong Hambone. Mm, go Queen Linda Hambone, hambone, where you been? Round the corner and back again mm-hmm. Hambone, hambone, where you wife? Oh, yeah. In the kitchen cooking rice A hambone, hambone, a hambone Give me hambone, give me some hambone Well now, hambone, hambone, put him on your shoulder mm-hmm. If you get a pretty girl, I'll show you how to hold her mm-hmm. Hambone, hambone, where you been? All around the world and back again A hambone, hambone, hambone
so much, Margo, for that wonderful conversation. And we are just going to continue with Margo Hall with the archival interview from way, way back in 2013 when she debuted her wonderful, wonderful um, work, Bebop Baby. We talked a little bit about that in this interview that you just heard. And this is um, when that particular work was being staged uh, at Brava Theater for the Arts, Brava Theater for Women in the Arts <laughs> in San Francisco. So here we are. Haven't listened to this one in a long time. So, um, you know, it goes without saying, Margo, that you're one of the first ladies of of theater here in the San Francisco Bay Area and with um your new piece, Bebop Baby, a musical memoir, you know, that might we might be able to say, you know, nationally and internationally. <laughs> uh, you're very kind. Thank you. Oh well, you know, I just heard little snippets of your story about growing up in Detroit, you know, with a famous stepfather, right? And how your living yeah. room was a place where the stars frequently visited. So. Actually in the basement. The basement, the basement was uh, <laughs> the place where everything went down, mm-hmm. um, where all the music and laughter and love happened was um, in the basement in Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, what years are we speaking with regards to this legacy? Because I know they, they, they're before you were born and they extend, you know, afterwards. So so what, are we, right. what, what era are we talking about? Well, um, my stepdad... Teddy Harris Jr., mm-hmm. the late Teddy Harris Jr., he worked with Motown back in the 60s, 70s. Um, I'm, I'm speaking more of the 
late 60s, early 70s. Mm-hmm. That's around the time I was around. Okay. <laughs> and um, and uh, being a part of his um, world in Motown. And he, uh, like I said, he was my stepfather, and, and he and my mom married when I was about 12 years old. Mm-hmm. And I guess I met him when I was about 10 years old. And um, and uh, he was, you know, he was very different from my biological father. Uh, he was a musician, and he was a cool cat, just very different. And it took me a while to figure him out because he wasn't my dad. But um, and all that is expressed in the play. Mm-hmm. And then slowly our relationship began to grow and a lot of it was based on um, both of us being um, creative beings <laughs> and being in the arts and um, and our respect for um, theater and music and all of those things that became our way of communication and um, he was one of the most prominent artists in Detroit um, and he, like I said, he played with Motown. He became, he toured with Aretha Franklin for years as her musical director, um, worked with Martha Reeves and the Vandellas and Kim Weston, and then he later became the music director for the Supremes. Really? And, yeah. Wow. And so I had a lifelong relationship with Mary Wilson of the Supremes, who was like an aunt to me, mm-hmm. still is. Mm-hmm. And, um... My house was just frequented by a lot of Motown artists, so for me, they were just people who worked hard and were talented. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my view of it uh, was a little bit different. I didn't really see. I understood that they were famous, but they were presented to me as just, you know, hardworking artists, and um, it gave me a lot of my uh, discipline and the way I go about my work came from the influence of all these famous, amazing people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. Wow, wow. So do you, um, in your work, um, talk about sort of the landscape, you know, that, that was was Detroit at that particular time? Because Detroit now is quite different. Right. Um, you know, Rosa right. Parks, she relocated from uh, from from Montgomery to to Detroit and um, and and Detroit is not just a musical capital but it also is a political capital. I mean, there was a yes, whole lot of stuff of going on, and I'm sure that impacted the folks that showed up, <laughs> you know, yeah. musically and theatrically uh, in your in your basement, you know, right. to work that stuff out, you know, for the people. Yeah, artistically. Yeah, for sure. It was you know it was a amazing time in Detroit and. Mm-hmm. And the Detroit I grew up in is, was pretty different than the Detroit it is now. I mean, later in my adult years, well, going, I'd probably say out, out of my teenage years into my adult years, things started to change. And um, Motown was gone. Um, drugs came into the area, just like most urban cities, and um, and things changed. And it's sad when I go home now to see the state of Detroit, but there's still a lot of hope and a lot of 
strength in Detroit, and um, I'm a big fan of my city, <laughs> and I continue to think and pray that things will change, and I, I think things go go in cycles, so I'm hoping that the vitality will return to Detroit, because uh, there's a lot of talent there, a lot of art there, a lot of music. Um, it's just stifled right now by all the other stuff, but it's there, and it's reemerging. Right. Yeah. So did you, when when uh, Diana Ross came through this summer, did you get a chance to hang out with her? No, I'm not. Um, I'm not that close with Diana Ross. Uh, like I said, Mary Wilson was my, <laughs> was our friend. Um, and by the time I knew the Supremes, Diana Ross was no longer part of the Supremes. I have met her because she has come to concerts. When I was little, she had come to concerts of other Supreme performances. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know her as well as I know, like Mary Wilson, mm-hmm. um, because I was, you know, I'm not that old, Wanda. So. <laughs> no, you're not that old. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, but, I mean, uh, like Aretha Franklin is a really good friend of my family. And really? She, she wow. actually sang at my mom's funeral. Um, your mom yeah. passed too. Oh, yeah. Your my mom passed. Oh. Yeah, yeah. My biological father is still alive, and mm-hmm. he's actually also a part of the play. Oh, okay. So you'll see that's an interesting little twist there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but your mom and your stepdad—they're—they're. They're... Yeah, they both passed away, and my mom passed away first. Mm-hmm. And um, Aretha Franklin sang at her funeral. Mm-hmm. Uh, she sang "Precious Lord" at the piano. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and. Um, and my dad, we had both of my parents had an orchestra at their funeral <laughs> um, that played not just a singer but an orchestra. Mm-hmm. So, because um, I, like I said, it was all about the music in my family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then my st- uh, stepfather passed a few years later after oh, okay. my mom. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It just seems like you know when I when I hear about Detroit. You know, um, you know those years that you're speaking. You know when it was really robust, and you know all those fabulous artists were coming through. You know through Motown, and and then your home. You know the stories that I've I've heard you talk about when, yeah. when folks. You know like um, uh, was it uh, James Carter? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and the folks would come through, and you all be like hanging out. You know after the the, the set at the club. And I just yeah. like watching you all just, just sort of telling stories and um and, and I was wondering how, how do you set this up, you know, this piece? I know you have a cast and and you're in, in the play, but you also yes. have some fabulous you know, oh, yes. area artists and then you have a fourteen piece orchestra, you know, with Marcus Shelby nonetheless and, and you and Marcus have done things in the past together. I mean I'm thinking about Sonny's Blues that you yes. directed, the James Baldwin piece for Word for Word, which was like, Oh my because that was back, you know, when Lorraine Hansberry had a theater That's and right. that was so so marvelous, and yeah, and I'm thinking, you know, um, I'm I'm thinking I might see a little bit of that in your work, uh, the way that you, you know, sort of orchestrated that particular piece, and the way that story yeah. was so musical in your hands. Yes. Well, we, um, yes, I do have an incredible team with um, 
Halili Knox and Don L. Troop mm-hmm. and Mujahid Abdul Rashid. Um, Halili and Don are my confidants and they help me on my journey in the story. Uh, Mujahid uh, plays my real father mm-hmm. and also is also one of the singers. The music is incredible. Um, Marcus and I, like you said, have collaborated over the years, um, and it's been really exciting to get back together and do this. It's really, uh, truly a a spiritual, mental, physical uh, journey with music and dance. Uh, We have a little dancing going on. We have singing, um, and we have story. And um, the music, um, I pretty much wrote the lyrics to the songs Mm -hmm. and the melodies, and I would send it to Marcus on an MP3, and he would turn it into this fantastic orchestration. And um, it's it's amazing to hear music that I've had in my head forever uh, come to life that way. Mm. And um, Marcus has been extremely generous in working with me and my changes. And oh, I don't want it that way. I want it this way. And um, and he's just an incredible composer mm-hmm. and in person, you know. And we're like brother and sister. We fight like everyone else. <laughs> I want it this way. Well, you told me this. Um, and then in the end. You know, we're those brothers and sisters who give each other a big hug and say, wow, look what we did. So mm-hmm. it's been uh, really wonderful, and I am very blessed to have my cast, who are not just incredible artists, but friends, mm-hmm. true, honest friends. And, and it's nothing like being on stage with people you trust and love and know um, that they're there for you. Uh, because, this, you know, it's hard to... I'm out there pretty much burying my soul, Mm -hmm. (laughs) telling my secrets, and um, to know you have someone there holding you up. It's it's just a wonderful experience. This whole journey has, I've learned a lot about myself, um, and uh, and I've had a great opportunity to work at Z-Space, and their space is a perfect space for this piece, Mm -hmm. and... um, yeah, I'm feeling very uh, grateful and blessed. Yeah, um, I was just thinking, you know, you're a founding member of Campo Santo, and uh, you just had a piece um, that closed this weekend. And uh, and and then, you know, you as you mentioned, um, you know, that there's this choreography, and you do everything. You sing, you dance, you direct. Are you still teaching at... Uh, Chabot? Chabot? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I still am. <laughs> You're a mother. Oh, my goodness. Your son is at the university now. My goodness. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Is, is he coming in to see this? Is he going to fly yeah. back? Yeah, we're trying to get him in. Um, you know, he's he loves school, so he's like, I can't take a day off, but I want to come. So. <laughs> it's like, all right, we'll fly you in for a day and get you back because he does not like to miss school. But, yeah, hopefully he's part of the story as well. So mm-hmm. it would be nice for him to see that. And, um, yeah, hopefully he can get in. And mm-hmm. I have a lot of family coming in from Detroit. Oh, that's They're so very nice. excited. Oh, yeah, my cool. sisters and cousins. And mm-hmm. so um, so that's going to be exciting, too, to yeah. have them come and 
see this work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, are you going to have any, like, audience um, discussions afterwards or anything like that? I don't think so, but I will say this. There is some audience participation. Oh, nice. Okay. We will have special guests appearing okay. in the show. <laughs> oh, nice. I can tell you that our Friday night show is a gala, and we have Claire D. Oh. who will be appearing with us in a capacity of the play. Oh, nice. I won't tell you any more, though. Okay. <laughs> Clarity, she's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And she's also a very good friend of mine, so mm-hmm. yeah. very excited to have her. Mm, fabulous. So, um, well, since you grew up with all this art all around you, performing arts in particular, did you go to that famous Detroit Performing Arts High School? No, I did not. <laughs> I went to um, I <clears throat> went to Highland Park High. Mm-hmm. Highland Park is where I grew up, and that's right in the middle of Detroit. And um, I did perform in the band. I played the flute. So I still all of most a lot of schools when I was growing up, the arts was really prevalent from middle school to. Um, Elementary, every school, I had dance, theater, music. That was never a question um, in Detroit. I don't know nowadays with all the funds being cut what it's like, but they're very, very um, influenced by art when I was going to school. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, I grew up there, and uh, and then I actually went to school to be a dentist, Really? To, to, yes. I oh, went to wow. University of Michigan for two years to study pre-med oh, wow. um, because I had um, I had pretty good grades and I had options to do that, but I realized that I it wasn't for me, mm-hmm. and I changed my major to theater. And then I went all the way and pursued theater, moved to New York, went to school there for undergrad, then got my master's degree in, at Catholic University of America in D.C., mm-hmm. um, and stayed on the path of theater, but mm-hmm. I, uh, <laughs> so I had kind of a, a turn there that I took because it was a financial thing and my mom wanted a doctor in the family and so, but then we all realized, no way, she's not going to go through with that. <laughs> <laughs> and I was supported all the way. Nice, so, nice. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So what brought you to California? Because it seems well, like your family is still pretty rooted in, in uh, Detroit. Yes. Um, well, the in, um, when I was married to L. Peter Callender, we were married in New York, mm-hmm. and then he got a job at Berkeley Rep. Oh, okay. And we came out then and just decided to stay. And once Brandon was born, uh, it, it seemed to make sense that we would stay here and make sure he went through school here um, and, you know, all of that. So, I mean, I think that, you know, once I was divorced and then I, Brandon went off to college, everyone kept expecting me to move to New York or go to L.A., you know, I'm finally able to do all those things, but I, I love the Bay Area. And I've been very successful here. And I love theater here. I think it's some great work going on. And I like being able to influence some of the work that's going on mm-hmm. just based on um, the time I've been here. And I, I, I'm, I'm a lot like my stepdad. 
he wanted to, he stayed in Detroit, even though he could have gone anywhere in the world with his talents and his prestige, but he stayed there and he helped the community there and he formed a band, a 15-piece orchestra called the New Breed Bebop Society Orchestra that people like James Carter were in and all of these youngsters who are now famous today. Um, so I'm a lot like him. You know, I stay here in the community. I teach at a community college. I've been there over 15 years. Um, I, I, I like my pond. <laughs> um, and so this is a very special place to me. And I believe in committing and giving back to what was given me. So yeah. that's why I'm staying in the Bay. <laughs> so we're happy that you're staying in the Bay, and we're happy that, gosh, this, um, you know, Bebop Baby, a musical memoir, is debuting here before it tours. Because, you know, you've been on lots of tours, you know, in your yeah. various capacities. So I'm sure this one's on a tour, but, yeah, it's really great to have, you know, artists of your caliber um, in you know, in the region and in the area and doing this, in you know, this, this original work. I mean, nowadays with, you know, the shrinking budgets, yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's rare to have original work. And so we have people, you know, doing the classics, you know, whether they're Wilson or Shakespeare um, or Baldwin um, or um, Hurston even, um, yeah. the Shockey. But... Oh, no, new work, you know? It's like, wow, this is so wonderful that you're able to mount new work with music and some of our favorite, you know, artists are going to be in the cast with you. And yeah. I don't know, Sheila, but uh, Balter, who's your director? She works with uh, Word for Word. Okay. She's with Word for Word, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so congratulations on this wonderful work, and I'm so excited about seeing your life on stage. Oh. <laughs> okay. How trusting of you. <laughs> I know, I know. Terrified. I'm terrified. Um, and we'll never know because you're like the, you know, the ultimate professional. So you might be quaking in your heart, but, you, right, know, but you know we love you. Never so. let them see you sweat. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you've won lots of awards, um, you know, for your work, you know, um, as an actress and, um, and as a director. So, you know, hopefully this will be another another feather in your cap, so to speak. Yeah, well, I'm very excited about it. And like I said, humbled, grateful mm -hmm. um, that this is happening and that uh, Z-Space is putting, producing this work and um, really looking forward to a future with this work, too, and mm -hmm. with my cast. Yeah. yeah, yeah, super excellent. And I was wondering, since it is a musical, um, mm -hmm. will will the music be available at some point? Um, we're talking about that. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Okay. And it's, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the score is incredible. So mm -hmm. we do have to do that at some point. Yeah, yeah, because Marcus has a real extensive publishing um, career. You know? Yes, Most yes. of his work eventually is available, so... Yeah, and it's, it's, uh, his music. Oh, you just wait. It's it's beautiful. Okay. Oh, it's just great. Wow. Well, tomorrow <laughs> is is opening night, and your yeah. and your um your gala is Friday, um, and the run is the nineteenth through the twenty third, which is uh, Tuesday through Saturday. 
So mm-hmm. real exciting. Yes, Congratulations. Tuesday through Saturday and Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday are 7 o'clock shows. Okay. And Saturday and Sunday are at 8. And like I said, on, I mean, not Sunday, Friday and Saturday are at 8. Mm-hmm. And Friday night is a gala where we have a little uh, reception before and after mm-hmm. uh, with some music. <laughs> and that's the night that Claire D will be uh, appearing on stage with us briefly. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And every night there's a special guest artist. So oh. keep your eye out for uh, some of our Bay Area favorites. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rodessa Jones will be stopping by. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have some exciting people who will be joining us on stage. Who else? Rodessa, drop some more names. <laughs> <laughs> who else? Well, there's a young um, singer. That works with Marcus, named mm-hmm. Tiffany Austin. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really beautiful voice. Um, she's coming by, and um, uh, uh, I can't give away any more, Wanda. Okay, okay, okay. Oh, you have to come for the whole thing because every yes, night is going right. to be different. They, that's right. You don't know when your death is going to be there, so you better just come. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, super, super. Well, all of that's happening at uh, Z Space. 450 Florida Street, and uh, wow, that's going to be so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm going to come um, tomorrow. um, Great. Yeah, and maybe I can come back through so I can see who your other guests are going to be. But definitely (laughs) I'm going to be there tomorrow. And, And a couple of friends of mine, one of my colleagues here at the College of Alameda, she and her husband, our Detroit natives, um, oh. yeah, and uh, they came to my class and they talked about Detroit, particularly, oh, uh, yeah, and the years, because we were reading about uh, Rosa Parks in my classes mm-hmm. this semester, and and I told them that I wanted to treat them to um, oh, yeah. to come in to see Bebop Baby, a musical memoir, you know, mm-hmm. featuring yourself and Marcus Shelby, jazz orchestra, because... You know, I knew they would love it because one of the things they were talking about was Motown mm-hmm. <laughs> and the music and how the artists would perform in the community centers and they go and mm-hmm. there yeah. they'd be like really close and they could mm-hmm. mingle and it was like really affordable or free mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's just, just, you know, the artists were part of the community in a way that, you know, we don't necessarily see our artists anymore um, the way, you know, it was in yeah, the past. Yeah, like that, yeah. It was, it was very community oriented and and they really that's how they could influence so many other youngsters because they were accessible mm-hmm. it seemed attainable you know yes yeah definitely definitely and and you're accessible i mean you're sharing your your creativity with so many uh so many different audiences and yeah and, and i mm-hmm, go ahead no i was saying and i love working with young people and um and teaching them the discipline of theater and art and the commitment and all of those wonderful things is not just about stardom. It's about hard work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's very important. So I really enjoy that as well. Cool. Well, you take good care, and I will see you in the theater. Yes. All right. Thank you, Wanda. Always a pleasure. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye Bye now.